Hey, this is Randy. Thanks for checking out this episode of Outside Shot, sponsored by Morgan Stanley. Together, we're going to bring you more amazing underdog stories. Testing, testing, one, two, three. Is this one and the bottom one? Okay, there we go. <laughs> On this episode of Outside Shot, the story of Mandel Crowley, head of private wealth management at Morgan Stanley. The firm either felt sorry for me or they said anybody's willing to wear a suit like that downtown, we want them on our team. I just was working for a better life for yeah. me and my family. I have a board in my office and it has a list on it that says the things that matter. At the very top of that list, it says people first. From the west side of Chicago to the top of the financial industry, Mandel is truly an outside shot. It's literally the only place I've ever worked. Morgan Stanley. They drew a line in the sand. Now here you stand outside that line with goals in mind. Dreams and destinies you'll put here to find. Manifest. They say you the worst when you know you're the best. So you invest. Put in that work even when it hurts. Their can'ts and their doubts turn into our will and our must. You put trust in your faith and your gut. The instincts you naturally feel against all lies. You tighten up even the playing field. Brick by brick you build like a city. There's something in me, in you, that just won't let you stop. You know it's going in, even though they say you are an outside shot. As a young African-American male coming out of the west side of Chicago, Mandel Crawley thought that one day he could be a teacher or even a basketball player on the west side of Chicago. That's all he knew. And then one day, he got an internship that would change his life forever. I didn't play with Mandel in the NBA or at Villanova, but this was someone who I was destined to meet. He's a role model, he's a leader, and he's changing so many lives for the better. This is the story of Mandel Crawley. Five, six, seven. Like three days trying to figure out how to cut the phone up. No, five, <laughs> I got the same one. <laughs> got it, bro. Okay, and anything. Can you remember the first time someone handed you money? First time someone handed me money, I think the thing that really jumps out at me is it's actually Isaiah Thomas, the Isaiah Thomas, the the original, uh, who's from Chicago, West Side, and I remember him. He gave me ten dollars, ten dollar bill. At uh, there's this local uh, hot dog uh, stand that that was pretty popular in my neighborhood that uh, he would always come back to visit. So I was probably eight or nine years old. I remember that. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. Yes, <Yeah. laughs> I'm sure it wasn't the first time, uh, but, but but I mean, in terms of obviously somebody my aunts, uncles, or whatever. But in terms of the thing that really stands out to me that I'll never ever forget is that. So were you like the type of guy that if someone gave you money, would you save it and put it in the piggy bank? Or were you the type of guy to say, hey, I'm going to spend this fast as possible? <laughs> Early part of my life, I was a I was a spender, no doubt about it. But as you as you mature and as you you come to learn a little bit of impulse control, now I'm I'm much more of a I think like an investor, uh, if you will. So I'm much more patient. I believe in patient capital now, definitely. When did you first get handed any money, Randy? The first time I got handed some money, it had to be for my grandfather. His ice cream truck used to come around, and he'd just give me two bucks to go get me and him an ice cream. That was, I think that was the first time I was ever, like, handed money. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar gave me a $100 bill? No, he didn't. Whoa. No, no, no. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I was about to say. <laughs> I mean, dude, you just trumped me. Yeah. When you're a kid, it just, it, like, represents independence or that innocence. No matter where you're from, it's a similar sort of emotion that at that age or whenever it was yeah. strikes you. And then it's a question of whether or not yeah. that remains with you as you get older. I mean, look, it's it's uh, my early years. It was everything from candy to sneakers to 
you know, bicycles, right? And so it, the notion of if I'm going to get, you know, any sort of, you know, any money whatsoever, it was like, what can I transact? Uh, but again, as you get older, you start to, you know, you get a little bit more patient, a little bit more thoughtful. So 14-year-old Mando, yeah. did you ever imagine that you'd be working at Morgan Stanley? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Um, furthest thing from my mind. I've wanted to be an educator. I wanted to be a teacher. That was that was probably the thing that stands out more than anything else. I mean, I, I wanted to be a hoops player, you know, no doubt. Uh, particularly at that age, I was playing high school ball or what have you. But in a professional sort of uh, context, working context, uh, being a teacher was something that really jumped out at me. And that was largely shaped by a couple of big factors. One was in my own personal circle, my church, there was a lot of the, a uh, couple of the women at the church were teachers, were educators. The other was, uh, I remember, you know, the Cosby show in a different world. That really shaped my worldview. Particularly a different world was a sitcom that, you know, seeing college up close and personal like that, one of the main characters, you know, Kadeem, I think it was Kadeem Harrison, yeah. I think his name, uh, Dwayne Wayne. Yep. Was his character? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The older Dwayne, no, older Dwayne. Uh, you know, the, you know when he matured. You know, uh, and he got the girl. He got Whitley. Yeah. So that really resonated with me, and I'm telling you that that was a pretty powerful thing in my living room every Thursday night. And so, 14 year old Mandel, that's what he uh, was very much interested in. Do finance was the furthest thing from my mind. I think that me and you have a lot in common. Mm. My father passed away when I was three, and my mom's passed away when I was six. Wow. It's just talking about leaning wow. on my grandparents and my aunts. It just was something that was tough growing up. And when I read your story and just reading everything that you have went through, it was amazing. How did you get through those days where it felt as though mm. the world was on your back, mm. your back is against the wall? Mm. What pushed you forward? I know in today's world, it seemed cliche to say, you know, it was the grace of God. I start with, you know, absolutely grace of God, because there were moments in my life, particularly during those early years, no idea what I was doing. When I look back on it now and I try to think about what was the catalyst between why I went down road A versus road B, and, and there's nothing that really jumps out with the exception of my grandparents. So I was incredibly fortunate to have you know, my brothers and I, I'm one of three boys. I'm the middle child, which may explain a lot, but that's another that's another segment, I think. But we had amazing grandparents who really were vested in, um, number one, getting custody of us. So when our mom passed away, you know, I was two. And um, our dad was actually uh, still around. I mean, he didn't, he didn't pass away until later in life. So he, it was, uh, I was 17 years old when, when uh, his life was cut short. He was only 39, so he was a young guy himself. But he was one of those uh, stereotypical scenarios in which he was in our lives, but he was just he was inconsistent, consistently inconsistent, and he had a real issue. Uh, when our mom died, he was 22 years old, had three boys. Uh, he was an army man prior to that. Alcoholism, drugs, et cetera, you know, really just sort of took him in many ways. And so a lot of times he would come visit us, but we were kind of embarrassed because he just wasn't in the best of shape. But our grandparents provide a bit of structure. They were all about our faith, going to church. We were the church boys in the neighborhood, and I think that that saved us from being pulled into some things. We fancied ourselves as, uh, yeah, clearly not as good as you, but we fancied ourselves as athletes, you know. So back in those days, I mean, there was a little bit of a code in the street. You know, if you played ball or what have you, you didn't have to worry about, um, you know, the gangs or whatever. If anything, that was a bit of a protection for you. 
And then, you know, they were all about education. My greatest achievement in life, and I don't think I'll ever do anything better than this, uh, I never missed a, a day in school, in elementary school. So from first grade to eighth grade, literally at school every single day. So I was always getting the perfect attendance award. And then back in those days, you could be sick and your parents could still sick, send you to school. They're like, you, you could be sick at home or you, you'd be sick at school. You might as well go to school. But uh, the importance of that, all of those things, though, I think just played a part in our, in our upbringing and, and helped shape us for sure. How much for you during that time were you more aware about who was there for you as opposed to what you may not have had? You know, it's, it's a pretty compelling thing, and, and, and it's not unique to me at all. And I'm curious, Randy, if you had the same sort of sense. Like when we were coming up, like we didn't really feel like uh, we lacked a lot. Because of, again, our grandparents, our church family, our aunts, uncles, cousins, and then you start thinking about, you know, friends in your community who had, you know, sort of similar issues, like where, where their dad wasn't around or something like that. It, it's amazing how normal that becomes. And, and, and even financially, you know, I, never, I can't recall a time where I felt like I, I wanted to go to the fridge to get something and I didn't have something, right? Sometimes it was... You know, I was eating like syrup sandwiches and stuff like that, which was, which was, you know, you sit on the porch with the syrup sandwich, you know, life's pretty good, right? You feel like yeah. you're in pretty good shape. So. Like, just like you said, I grew up in Newark, New Jersey. Yep, sure. So single parent homes, murder rate, drugs, violence, gang violence is all around you. Yep. But when you're an athlete, it seems like they take care of you. Yep. But for, for me, even though I would go into the, the refrigerator and it just would be baking soda <laughs> and it would be a gallon of water yeah. but it was after we used a gallon of milk that yeah. we filled the water back yeah. up I know that well. I know that well it just felt as though even though my grandmother was hustling every single night to just get us some rice and some chicken yeah. to be able to eat yeah. it always felt like we had a meal yeah and I had perfect attendance too. Yeah. But I would go to school to eat. <laughs> yeah. I'll make sure I was at school every day. People were like, man, you here so early. And I'm like, yeah, because I want to play on the basketball course. Yeah. But I really was there to eat breakfast. Yeah. yeah <laughs> so it, when you're in it, it just feels as though like this is life. This is normal. Yeah. Everything is going on around me. This is how it's supposed yeah. to be. But then when you leave. Yes, 100%. And you come back. You're 100%. Like, wow, it's not supposed to be like this. You know, it's, it's one of the reasons I believe that exposure is such a powerful thing. Like in our country, we believe in these a set of ideals, right? America is a, a country of idealism, i.e. if you work hard enough, you can become anything you want. And as you get older, you come to realize that in some instances, working hard isn't enough. And what I mean by that specifically is effort is, of course, important. Education is, of course, important. But if you don't have exposure Right. And so many you know, guys I've come up with from my old neighborhood who were on the block then are still on the block now. They've never left. So you just don't get an appreciation for, you know, I oftentimes say that for many of them, the world is still flat instead of round. And I think it was I was in sixth grade when I kind of started to realize the resources that we lacked. And we did this exchange program, my, my public school, my elementary school to uh, this magnet school in Chicago called Walt Disney. And when we did this two week program and you go from the school I was attending, Willa Cather Elementary and then attended uh, Walt Disney and you see the chasm, like how wide that gap was. Then you start to realize that, hmm, okay, maybe that's an issue. That was the same for me. We had pen pals with um, Livingston High School. And so we would write them for, I think it was like three weeks, and then we would go visit them, mm. and then they would come to Newark and visit us. <laughs> and I remember when we went to go visit them, 
they had a computer room. Yeah. And all the kids yeah. were using them. It was like 90 computers. I was like, wow. wow. They have computers. Yeah. What are they playing games? <laughs> then they came to us and they was like, <laughs> it was a culture shock for us. And then it was a yeah. culture shock for them. And they came to us. Yeah. So your first interview, talk to me about this yellow suit. <laughs> talk to me yeah, about this yellow yeah. suit. Your first interview, first internship. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I one one fact check uh, is it was actually gold. Oh, it was gold. <laughs> so I, I, yeah, yeah, but but the, the point still holds, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of pride in that fact check. <laughs> Do you yeah, still have it? <laughs> yeah. No, sadly not. I could paint a picture though. If you remember the movie Jim Carrey's movie The Mask. Oh yeah. When he had the gold suit on, like that'll give you that'll give you a visual, which it's it's a pretty painful one. But it speaks to the point we were just talking about exposure. Um, in my community, we grew up in the church, and it was a traditional Southern Baptist church on the west side of Chicago. And as you may be able to appreciate in Newark, you know, you you show up to Sunday service with a gold suit on, a red suit or purple, you know, the mothers of the church are telling you how good you look, you know. So I show up to the interview, I think I had a swagger walking in. And they either, they being the firm, either felt sorry for me or they said, anybody who's willing to wear a suit like that downtown, we want them on our team. But the reality is I knew enough to wear the suit and I had the suit and tie on the whole bit. And I can't recall ever having, you know, sort of a fear, right, walking. Um, and that's not a bravado. That's not my bravado talking. It's just, I just had this ability to engage folks and be comfortable. And, and I wish I could articulate things that I may have done or learned along the way to contribute to that. I guess I'd have to give credit to my grandparents um, and how they raised me or what have you. And again, spending so much time in my church around adults or whatever. So I guess maybe I was a little bit more mature. Surely, as you may appreciate, Randy, you know, losing parents early, you know, kind of forces you to grow up a little bit, I think, in some ways. But I had an incredibly welcoming environment. The guy who hired me, who's still a, a men- my mentor to this day. I mean, it wasn't just about the job. You know, I was working 20 hours a week, making five bucks an hour. These people invited me into their homes. You know, I started to go out to dinner with them. And, and back to that exposure point, I started to learn a lot. And the one thing you come to appreciate, particularly when you have an opportunity to, to connect with folks from different cultures or what have you, you come to realize how much we are alike versus how different we are. I think all of that played a part in, uh, in getting that opportunity. And it's literally the only place I've ever worked. Morgan Stanley. So west side of Chicago. Yeah. It's Fordham University. How does that happen? You know, first generation college and... It's not a unique story, right? And I'm curious to hear yours, right? First generation. Uh, so it's not all that unique. This country's been around for a long time, and the fact that folks are still saying the first of my family to do X, Y, Z is, you know, that's that's a little troubling, but, but I'm an optimist. I'm very encouraged about what the future holds. But it was the internship. Um, I had always, even then, I was planning to go to college, and I ended up going to the college that I intended to enroll in. That was Northeastern Illinois University because I wanted to be an educator, and Northeastern used to be a teacher's college back in the 60s. And back to the women at the church who was a little bit of role modeling for me, they all had gone there. And when it was time to apply to colleges, I went to a college fair in Chicago, and there were all these institutions represented there. And I go to the Northeastern table, and I had pretty decent grades. And I said, you should have no problem getting in. So I, got, I turned around, and I went home, right? And, and so this idea of applying to all these schools and thinking about leaving home to go to school was something that just wasn't part of my calculus. It was just unfamiliar territory for me. So in many ways, that's 
that shaped my selection process. But when I started working at the firm and the level of exposure that came with that, my expectations of myself started to increase. And I'd say, I mean, it accelerated. Um, And surely when I moved to New York back in 99, I almost want to say that's when I really started to to live and come alive from uh, from a professional perspective. I think something that kind of scarred me for life, for the better, was going to my friend Max Schaefer house. Hmm. He played on my AU team. Hmm. We were in the backcourt. And I remember going to his house, and they had, I think, a three or four-car garage. We go in. We go downstairs. They have a theater, a bar. We didn't touch the bar. (laughs) (laughs) We go upstairs. You know, it's nice. Dining room, the foyer. And I'm just like, I just remember going there. And I remember I wanted to go there every single weekend. Wow. At yeah. the AAU practice, I was like, hey, man, yeah. what, what, are, what are you guys doing? <laughs> He's like, oh, you, my mom's are taking us to Florida, to our other house for spring break or something like that. I'm like, man, I wish wow. I could go. He's like, how oh, ass? <laughs> wow. And I was like, man. And I just thought, I want this. I'm like, I don't know what I have to do yeah. to be able to purchase something like right. this, but I need this. Yes. I need to be in a gated community where I see deer. Yeah, <laughs> a couple of raccoons on a garbage can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, but I need this because this is life. Yeah, you know, every time you hear something, a pop, you you looking, getting ready yeah. to take off or leave your car out front and it's stolen. Yeah, it's like whatever I have to do, I need this, and that kind of scarred me. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was working for. I just was working for a better life for yeah. me and my family. Wow, that's powerful. That's really powerful. Can can relate can relate to that for sure. But uh, it's sometimes ignorance is bliss, you know, but in this particular case, you know, getting exposed to that, you know, proved to be like this driving force and what's been a remarkable life for you too. So you have twin daughters. Mm, They just turned four. (laughs) How has that changed your life with this crazy world that we live in with your four-year-old twin daughters? You know, I think, I think all parents go through that phase of like before, before we had our girls getting on a plane wasn't much of an issue. You become so much more aware of your mentality. Like I'm, I'm more, I'm a more careful person. I'm more, I mean, I've never been, my friends would never refer to me as like the, the wild one. Right. But I, I would definitely say that, um, I've just become more conservative, uh, in, in how I operate. Uh, so that's one, two, I definitely feel, uh, and I know you've got, you know, daughters as well. I feel like the responsibility of just being an example, it's heavy too. And projecting, the type of person that I want them to aspire to be like, and not just in the context of the person I would love for them to marry, just in the context of just being a responsible adult who works hard, cares about other people, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I've long sort of felt like I was a role model, you know, given my younger brother or what have you, but when you have your own, you know, kids, I mean, it's just never more important. Uh, and then lastly, again, back to exposure is just exposing them to, you know, the real world. And I trust that you probably think about the same thing. And how do I give them struggle? You know, how do I give them struggle? Like I, I you know, grew up, you know, with not much, you know, we had a lot of love, but didn't have enough, you know, in terms of our finances. But how do I, you know, they're, they're going to have a better life than I had growing up. I mean, they won't be going, they won't be eating syrup sandwiches, unfortunately, because they're, they're quite good. <laughs> um, but how do I make sure that they have a balanced view of the real world? And that's, that's partly why we're, we're thinking, we're looking at schools now. And, you know, while it's easy to say, okay, let's look at private schools, you know, my wife and I are both thinking public schools, you know, just to, so that they can get that experience, you know, what, what about you? How do you think about that? 
So we have a 10 year old, a seven and a five. Okay. All girls? All girls. Oh man, you got to write it yeah, hard. <laughs> so my, my wife is a, is a twin. Okay. And she plays soccer at Villanova. So I said to her, like, how did you guys stay away from everything that these high school kids are doing? Okay. One thing she said, sports. Yeah. She said, because if you think about it, it preps you early. If you don't get good grades, you can't play sports. Yeah. And you want to play sports. So my daughters love soccer, which I'm upset with because they, they play basketball. Yeah. Just to they're like, we're going to play basketball, <laughs> dad, that. just to stay in shape. That's yeah. what they say to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So soccer, yeah. my wife coaches them, all three of them. That's awesome. And it's just like she push them and she yeah. push them. But not only, you know, on the field, on the court, but she makes sure at home first that she mm. push them in the classroom. Mm. And we said, hey, what do we want to do, private or public? And she said the same thing. She's like, I don't want them to experience something in the 12th grade that they probably were supposed to experience in the ninth grade if private school, everything is kept under wraps. It's tough. This one goes by 2.7. Were you guys into math at all growing up? Mm. I mean, you deal with a lot of numbers, but be in your own way. Like, was math something that was just... Natural, but you didn't know it, or I'm curious from both of you guys. What do you think? Wasn't for me. It wasn't at all. I, all I was worried about, only math I was worried about, was points, assists, <laughs> and rebounds. I say, hey, I need five layups to get ten points, and then after that, I'm not going to think anymore. That I'm going to try to get at least six rebounds and then some assists. That's how I used to think. And so I got to Villanova, and I was in a calculus class, and I was like, whoa. whoa. <laughs> I was like, listen, coach, I think I need extra tutors. <laughs> well, like, this language is foreign to me. Yeah, yeah. Look, you're better than me. I, I, uh, the short answer is no. I was like a writer when I was a kid. Like, I would write these short stories. Uh, and I remember vividly when I was in the fifth and sixth grade, I'd like hand write out, you know, a narrative from front to, uh, to back. So that was more my thing. High school wasn't, I was a, a solid, I was a pretty good student, but not a strong math uh, person. Uh, and even when I got to college, I remember taking this finite mathematics class, dropped it twice <laughs> just because when you get there, you get punched in the face. And it kind of speaks to, again, when you're in the educational system, if you're not prepared for those things, you know, early on, you develop this sort of phobia around quant. Uh, and it wasn't until later in my life that I started to build confidence around, you know, math and finance. And, and I ended up going back to business school, or what have you. And so now I actually consider myself to be a bit of a, a math guy. But the early, early on, that was not me. I want to know personally, hmm. in a, the easiest way as possible, that you can explain to me what Morgan Stanley does. <laughs> because yeah. when you look at TV and you, look, you watch movies, sometimes you get get a little pissed. You're like, man, it's all set up, all these statistical numbers and all of this stuff. So can you explain exactly sure. what Morgan Stanley does? So if I were writing it on the back of a napkin, I would say uh, as a firm, and it's a big place with 55,000 employees, you know, we're operating in like 41, 42 countries around the world. I would say we advise, originate, trade, manage, and distribute capital for governments, institutions, and for individuals. And we try to do it with a standard of excellence. So that's, the, that's, that's what I would write on the back of a napkin. And the way I like to explain it to people is when you think about innovation, you know, innovation starts with an idea, right? So the idea is essential, but I always make the argument that the idea itself is insufficient, right? To truly have transformative impact Right? If, you're, if you're somebody, a business owner, and you have a, an idea and you want to do something at scale, 
you can have the idea, but you need capital, right? So where capital and the idea come together, that's how you scale. So whether it's Nike, Under Armour, Pepsi, Coke, all of these institutions started at some point where somebody had an idea and then they needed capital to do it. So Morgan Stanley is in the business of bringing together folks who need capital and investors who are willing to invest capital. And by bringing those two things together, you know, we're able to create and build um, so much. I mean, everything from roads, bridges, when you're funding governments and municipalities, uh, from an individual perspective, you know, the business that I'm in and private wealth, we uh, help our clients not just manage their money because most people only think when they think of finance, they obviously think of investing. That's one part of it. Um, so yes, there's the financial capital part of that, you know, what to allocate, how to, how much to allocate to stocks, bonds, or how much you should have in cash. But I really get excited talking to clients about human capital, i.e. multi-generation, you know, making sure that your girls are going to be taken care of. So the money that you have, how do we make sure that that wealth is transferred to them in a responsible way, in a way that's prescriptive to your values and your, and what you want for them over time? Um, thinking about hedging or protecting, um, you know, longevity risk, right? Making sure you don't outlive your money or thinking about mortality risk, you know, God forbid something happens suddenly, you know, what's going, what's that going to mean, you know, for your family? So how do we protect your family? So I put that all in the human capital bucket, if you will. And then lastly, philanthropic mission. We spend a lot of time with our clients, um, who, uh, like I used to be where I would just write checks and I'd spend time and I'd go to the galas and eat the rubber chicken like everybody does. But how can you be more disciplined in your giving? So your, your philanthropic mission is something that is also important, um, to us. So we span corporations, governments, and, and also individuals, but I really think it comes down to, you know, capital and making sure that folks who need it and folks who are willing to invest in it, that we bring those two people, those two entities together. So. Hopefully that's helpful. I read somewhere early on in your career where you said your mentor, mm. he left and went to another company. Yeah. And that was sort of a wake up call for you. Yeah. Who did you lean on in that time once he left? You know, the first bit of professional adversity that I had experienced was back in 2008. So up until that time, I mean, I had only enjoyed almost this consistent upward trajectory in terms of the experiences. I was fortunate to have the promotions that I was getting along the way. And so this notion of, you know, professional adversity, obviously, you know, my life, I had a lot of personal adversity, but professional, it was this non-existent. I had left this division where I was having a great deal of success to follow my manager at that time and to take what I thought was a fantastic opportunity. And the financial crisis had started, so the world was changing, right? And I was too naive to to know that. So long story short, he ends up you know, doing what was best for, for him in his career, and it turned out to be a brilliant move because he's doing fantastic. Uh, so he ended up leaving, and for the first time, I felt like, uh, not abandoned because the firm is, is a pretty, it's, it's robust and there's a lot of, I have a ton of great relationships, but in terms of somebody who had a vested interest in me and helping me manage my career, it's the first time I had felt like I was a little bit on my own. And it was probably more just not being used to the professional adversity. And I, I probably, not probably, I, I acted immature. I was walking up and down the street like somebody stole my bike. I <laughs> uh, thought about leaving the firm because we went through this transformative uh, merger at the time. And as you all know, mergers can be bloody. And um, I was demoted, not one level, two levels. Uh, hindsight being 2020, it was absolutely the appropriate thing. But being a young up and coming executive, you know, my lip was poked out. 
But it reminded me of just the, the importance of not just mentorship, but sponsorship, right? And there's a difference. I mean, mentors, in my view, at least, are folks that you have in your circle who are going to give you the e-true Hollywood story. You know, they're going to give it to you straight. You know, they're not just there to hug you and tell you how great you are. But sponsors are people who are at the table that matters, right? The decision makers, right? Who can actually, you know, um, pick up the phone, make a call on your behalf, uh, and, you know, put you in the right spot or what have you. So that whole experience, which lasted about, I'd say 12, 14 months, um, it was great for me from a maturity perspective. I, I grew a lot, you know, during that period. Fortunately, I didn't leave the firm and, um, Pat Summit, you know, the old great yeah, coach from Tennessee. University of Tennessee, you know, Tennessee, when she got the ESPY award, I think it was a year before she passed away. She said, you went in life with people. And I think that that's a hundred percent true. No doubt about it. So I had some folks who rallied to my side and were really, were really helpful. At that time, at that period, as you're sort of, you know, evaluating your next steps, are you getting advice from people outside of the business side, you know, and sort of identifying what's important to you? Mm -hmm. Or are you turning to people inside the industry to understand like, okay, this is the process and you need to figure out if -hmm. this is where you want to be? It's a great, great question. Um, It's both. Obviously, I'm 42, so I still got a lot of runway left, um, and I, I suspect that at least the majority of the balance of my career will be in finance. But I do plan to, you know, end up in somebody's classroom at some point. Back to the whole teacher's bug. I, I do some guest lecture work now at Fordham, and uh, I own a college in New Rochelle. So as I'm still building and growing, learning, you know, from my uh, in my career, you know, I, I think it's helpful to have advisors who uh, not just care about me, because that's obviously the most important prereq is that you want people to pour into you who actually care and they have context of the industry, the culture, et cetera. So that's helpful. But the outs- outside the industry is is so important too. I mean, because obviously you know, our lives and what we're trying to do overall, I mean, is so beyond just what you do vis-a-vis your nine to five. Um, I'm trying to actually, you know, uh, be far more prescriptive in terms of how I give and where I give. Uh, so I've done a lot of work with the Covenant House uh, here in New York. You know, it's all about fighting youth homelessness. And a lot of times it's just going over to the shelter and spending time with young men, pouring into them, young guys who are coming up the ranks. Uh, I'm on the board of the Boys and Girls Club, again, in a, an institution that did so much for me and my brothers or what have you. So I'm forever indebted to them. And so I spent a lot of time with thought leaders in that space, too. And they also pointed me and provide advice and counsel. But I think it's important to have a, a healthy mix of both. I'm guessing when you first started working here that there weren't a lot of African-American men or women working here. <laughs> did you ever notice that that was unusual? You know, going back to the very beginning and working on this that small little trading desk where there was like 14, 15 employees, none of whom looked like me. The first seven years of my career was there. And so in many respects, that kind of shaped, I almost became, it was just normal to me. And it wasn't until later, believe it or not, it sounds weird, I guess, on some level. It wasn't until later, you know, moved to New York, where um, I was in a much bigger part of the firm, it became increasingly obvious to me that, you know, this is an issue. It never, I've never experienced, and I wish I had a story, a, a, a more provocative story of, of uh, feeling like I've been isolated or marginalized uh, or mistreated or something like that. I, I actually don't have 
that's never really been my experience uh, in that regard. Now, that's not to say that many who've walked uh, even through these halls may have, I'm sure they felt that way. Because of how early it was for me, I became desensitized to it, which which makes makes it a little unique for me. As an institution, we're we're grappling with it. You know, personally, like I think having diverse thinkers is is important, and I think it's just you know varying opinions and perspectives in terms of how people see the world. However, you know, the thing that I'm also equally passionate about, I do think having a mix of multicultural backgrounds uh, matters a great deal. And I do, despite my own personal experience, uh, role modeling is powerful. Seeing, if you're a young African-American male at a big corporate institution, seeing other African-American senior uh, executives, black executives walk in the halls uh, with expanded responsibilities matters a ton. I mean, it really does. Same thing with women. So folks can see what's possible. The good news is, I think, and this is a whole nother podcast, when you start thinking about just this country and the challenges of this country, you slavery, Reconstruction, the civil rights movement, you can argue that you didn't have complete liberation until like 1965, right? Uh, and even then you went into this era of mass incarceration. And so all of that plays a part in terms of why we have so few folks, you know, um, doing what I do right now. But when I think about just, you know, how far we've come, right, just in an African-American or black context in just the last 50 years, I'm really encouraged uh, about what we'll be talking about from a diversity perspective 10 years from now. But it is a 10-year solve. It's not something that we're going to solve overnight. And so I think sports play a huge part in that dynamic. I think, you know, sports is truly an equal opportunity um, sort of arbiter, if you will. Music is another, you know, sort of uh, space, you know, from a cultural perspective that's had a lot of impact. Corporations just haven't quite caught up yet. But as I've become older is one of the things that I'm absolutely passionate about, changing and doing more than my part to make sure that uh, we get better at it. And the good news is we are making a lot of progress, but we got a long way to go. No doubt. Just as an athlete, you always hear defense wins championships. You got to make some shots, but if you got it together defensively, that wins championships. What wins championships for you guys? And it starts with um, our people. The greatest asset that we have here at the firm goes up and down the elevators every single day. It's all about our intellectual property, our intellectual capital. You know, we got a lot of brain power at our firm, but in the final analysis, you know, we are a relationship-based, talent-driven um, organization, and our core values are anchored in sort of four principles. You know, number one, put clients first. So everything that we do, the entire ecosystem that is Morgan Stanley, we try to wrap that around our clients and make sure that we're delivering more than one part of the firm to clients. Number two is leading with exceptional ideas, and that kind of ties back to the intellectual property, the intellectual capital that we have here uh, to help our clients solve problems. Number three is do the right thing. And while it sounds obvious, you know, in our business, I mean, there's always something happening um, where somebody's got a, an idea or there's some, some entity in the market that's performing abnormally. And it's so easy to sort of chase, you know, do the ambulance chase where something seems like my grandfather used to say, if something seems too good to be true, generally it is. And that's a principle that is absolutely played out every single time. And so you got to be disciplined and just in doing your homework. You know, if you're going to put money to work just from an investment perspective, it's no different than being a great athlete, right? I mean, if you don't put the time in the gym and you don't burn the calories and do the whole prep thing, I mean, you're, just, you're going to be suboptimal. I mean, that's just how the world works in my view. So if you don't do your homework, I mean, game over. And then number four, which I know you guys would appreciate is just uh, giving back. 
you know, how do we play? We, we have a responsibility that's greater than, you know, serving shareholders and employees. It's also our communities. You know, what can we do as a firm, you know, to give back to community? So to me, that's the playbook uh, for us. I think it's a great question, Randy. And, you know, if you look at the public record, you know, we're doing pretty good. As someone who's overcome obstacles and mm. is an outside shot, an underdog, do you see that in people? Like when you meet people, whether they're just starting out or they're in the industry, do you sense that's that sort of similar trait that they went through that you have? And is that something that you kind of look for in people? Yeah, when you were t- when you were talking like outside shot, I immediately think of one of my favorite books is by Malcolm Gladwell, Outliers, and it just it, the book is as you may have read is it's it's largely about yes, you got to have a measure of talent, yes, you have to work extraordinarily hard. But circumstances have to, opportunities have to present themselves. So if you don't, and the opportunity has presented itself at the right time, like if you're born at the wrong time or you come of age in the wrong time, if you came of age during the depression or you came of age during the financial crisis and you were trying to get into business, or if you uh, were set to be drafted, you know, when the league was on on strike or something like that, there's so many factors that just play a part in, in this thing called life. That's why I love like the the nature of this this podcast because it it has the ability to inspire folks because people can get so caught up in their circumstances or what have you and and not feel like there's a way out. But clearly, your story and you, you know your life is an example of that. Maybe I have a little bit of that too. Um, and when I, I meet young people today, and I'm just blown away at how buttoned up, prepared, you know, polished many of them are. And so, in some time, sometimes it's hard to really decipher. Right, who has it in them, right? Because unless you see them under pressure or under stress, it's really hard to kind of know that. I-, I will tell you, we talked about sports uh, earlier. Even when I think about, you know, the talent here at Morgan Stanley, the cross section of, yeah, they were decent students, but, you know, they usually played team sports of some kind, whether it's hoops, lacrosse, football, soccer. Um, I do think that, that there's an element of, you know, the whole team kind of thing that, that sort of resonates. But as it relates to the grit, you know, that toughness, it's really hard to know. But do I have a bias, to be blunt? Do I have a bias of somebody who I know had to really burn a lot of calories to to get into college and somebody who actually may have like a 3.0 GPA, which doesn't make you fall out of your chair. But when you look at all the other things that they're doing, uh, like whether it's, you know, jobs that they had to take on, they're in student government on campus, they're in a fraternity in a leadership capacity. I actually like that that person more than somebody who was like a 4.0 and didn't do anything else, right? So somebody who has capacity, right, to take on a lot, that is something that sort of jumps out at me. And the reason I'm sort of sound maybe like I'm hedging a little bit is because I always say every hire is an out-of-the-money option. Like you just don't know what you're getting until you get an opportunity to kind of see them. But there was a guy in this industry, I think it was Hank Greenberg, who said, I like them poor but hungry. Right. If you can get that combination, that, that tends to work out pretty well. It's an honor to meet you. It's an honor just to be able to sit here and have this conversation with you. It felt like I was a student today. I learned so much. But thanks for taking the time out with us because this is awesome and I think this is going to be great. And you're a good man. I appreciate you guys having me. I really do. Been a fan for a long time. I remember when you were in college, you guys had a pretty good backcourt. Decent. Thanks. Decent. <laughs> <laughs> now you guys were serious, though, serious. And just to have the longevity that you've had and then to learn more about your story. And it's so funny. I tell people all the time that my story is not as unique as you think it is. And then I hear your personal narrative. It just uh, it just blows me away. And it's an example of what I'm talking about when I say that. 
And for you to go on to do all the things that you were able to do, you know, the feeling is totally mutual. So I appreciate you guys reaching out to me and I'm going to be making sure I'm pushing folks to add this podcast to their listening. Um, so thank you thank very you. much, man. We appreciate it. I got to ask, have you paid Isaiah Thomas back? <laughs> <laughs> I actually ran into him. True story. I ran into him a number of years ago here in Westchester, and I told him that story. And he remembered my aunts because he grew up with my aunts and, and uncles. And I still give my aunt grief to this day. I'm like, so you picked the other guy, huh? Couldn't have <laughs> stayed with Isaiah. But he rem- and I told him the story, and he was just like blown away because to his credit, he still goes back to the west side of Chicago. He goes back to the King Club, and uh, I'll always admire him for that. Thanks, man. Thanks a lot, guys. Appreciate it.